So Job is where we're going to camp out. And last week we talked just about the meaning and the mystery of suffering. The meaning and the mystery of suffering. And we just really covered uh, two points from one of the most famous sufferers. This is Job. And I told you last week I'm making a massive assumption that most of the people in this room hopefully all know a little bit about this man. His name is Job, not Job. And this is not an allegory. This book is not an allegory. It's not a fable. It's not fiction. It's, it's not a metaphor. It's not a parable. It's a real story. Job was a real man who lived and suffered real tragedy. He lost everything that was dear and precious to him, humanly speaking. He lost his health. He lost his house, his wealth, his possessions, and he lost all 10 of his children, seven sons, three daughters, the same day. Intense and agonizing affliction and suffering. And so last week we talked about what can we gather from his tragedy and, and from the conversations he had with God. And it was this, just a, just a few points. Number one is that suffering is inescapable. If you live long enough, you will encounter and face agonizing suffering. Or you will encounter other people who face it. And oftentimes, they're innocent sufferers. They haven't done anything to bring that suffering on. They haven't committed sin. And you know, that's what the Bible says about Job. It says that Job was an upright man. He was blameless. It doesn't say he was sinless. It says he was blameless. There's a difference. And here's what it means. There was no scandal waiting to break out with Job, okay? There's no secret sin hiding underneath the surface. What Job was in public, Job was in private. He's not a hypocrite. There's no duplicity. There's no scandal. He's not cheating on his wife. You're not going to find Job on AshleyMadison.com. None of that stuff, okay? Job was an upright man. He really feared God. He served God. He worshiped. He had integrity. And you know the courtroom dialogue in heaven, Satan. That's a title, and it means the opposer. Satan came and reported to God, and God said, hey, I know you're walking all over the place looking to cause trouble. Have you considered Job? He's my servant. He's blameless. He shuns evil. He hates sin, and he serves me. And Satan says, oh, he's a servant, is he? He's a servant. Do you know Job's not really your servant? He's not serving you. He's using you. He only worships you because you give him all these goodies. You've got this enormous hedge around his life, and I can't touch him. I've tried. So take the hedge down, God. Let me strike Job. Let me take away everything dear to him, and he'll curse you to your face. So that's kind of the courtroom scenario that plays out. And God says, okay, Satan, you can go this far and no further. Take his health, take his children, take his wealth, but spare his life. And so that's what Satan does. Intense, agonizing suffering. And you, you all have encountered it yourself or somebody that you know that's dear to you, that affliction, sudden, unexpected, tragic, agonizing loss comes. Loss of loved one, cancer, betrayal, abuse, depression. And suffering takes so many different forms. Maybe there's something that you're really wanting, a career, a spouse, children. Maybe there's infertility. Lots of things take the, the shape and the form of suffering, and it's agonizing. And you didn't do anything to bring it on. And you're disillusioned and you're confused. Suffering is inescapable. Everyone will face it. And it's also unexplainable. That was the other thing that we looked at. Job's friends, and this is where we always get ourselves in trouble. Job's friend came 
And you read that text that Job did. I want you to see that this, this is actually in the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up, okay? Job's friends heard about the evil that had come upon him. They loved him. They knew him. They were sad for him. And here's what it says. It says, his three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him. They came each from his own place. Iliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come. And then what, what, were, what was their aim? What was their purpose? To show him sympathy and to comfort him. That's what they were hoping to do. That's what they were wanting to do. Our suffering is inescapable and it's unexplainable oftentimes. And so they came wanting to comfort him, wanting to show him sympathy but they ended up tearing Job to pieces because they were trying to explain the unexplainable. They were delving into the deep and mysterious counsel of God where they had no business going. So they came with their cold, calculated, mathematical explanations and it fell flat. But bad theology, as you know, hurts people, doesn't it? Bad theology hurts people very bad. And that's what happened to Job. They came to comfort him, but what was the effect they had? Check this out. And, and, and this is where I really want you to pay attention. And I have prayed for this message because I know this. I know when we are someone that, that is close to us is going through suffering, we crave comfort from God and also from people. We're, we're made in the image of God. We, we live in community. It's not good for us to be alone. And we especially desire people when we're in misery. Most people do anyway. Um, and I know as Christians, we want to provide that. And so I have prayed that this sermon doesn't intimidate you where you say, well, you know what? If words are that powerful and words are that dangerous, I'm just not even going to make an idiot out of myself or bring harm on somebody. I'm just not going to say anything to people who are suffering. And you would be misapplying the message that I'm bringing today, okay? So I want you to pay attention to what happened with Job, but I want us to learn from this because God does want us to be ministers of comfort to other people. He does. So they came to bring comfort to Job. They came to sympathize with him. And this is what happened. I think I went too far there. Check this out. By chapter 13, this is what Job says. As for you, you whitewashed with lies. He's talking to his three friends, okay? I mean, imagine a scenario. You're suffering. You're in pain. You're in affliction. Your friends come. They sit with you for seven days and they just cry, which is awesome. That's what Job really needed. They cried and they sat with him in silence for seven days, but then they opened their mouth and they started talking. And by chapter 13, can you imagine a scenario where you tell your friends, you whitewash things with lies. Worthless physicians are all of you. Wow, <laughs> what in the heck happened? They went from wanting to comfort him and, and sympathize with him to being called worthless physicians. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. You know what he's saying? I wish that you would shut up. I wish all of you would just shut up and keep your mouth closed. And you would do me much more good. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? So that's chapter 13. Look at chapter 16. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. All three of them. So he says, you're worthless physicians and your miserable comforters. I mean, I, when I'm reading that, that gets my attention. I don't want to be that, do you? I certainly don't want to receive that, and I don't want to be that. Miserable comforters, worthless physicians, and then look at chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, how long will you torment me? What? 
Don't raise your hand, but have you ever suffered and agonized in affliction and somebody thinking and wanting to help you tormented you? That's terrible, isn't it? Maybe you've been on the other side of that and you've been on the tormenting side and didn't know it until maybe years later that they say, you know, when you came to me and you said what you said, that hurt me. He says, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Wow. And then the culmination of all of it, Job is just weeping and he's crying out. Chapter 19, he says, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Job says things like, God has cut me off. God has fired his arrows at me and I'm drinking in their poison. I feel like I'm dying. I feel like God's destroying me. You know what makes that worse? His friends made it worse. It's really sad. If you read chapter 16, where he says, you're miserable comforters, and then you read the other things that Job is saying about God, his friends only added to his aggravation. They didn't mitigate it at all or absorb it. They intensified it. I just don't want to be that, and I know you don't either. I do not want to intensify people's suffering. So what happened? What happened? How did they become worthless physicians, miserable comforters, and how did they tear him to pieces with their words? Because listen, you know this. If somebody is inviting you into their life to help them, and that's what a friend is, right? You have access to people that nobody else does. You know that is a, an incredible stewardship. Because when you're suffering, you are at your most vulnerable point. True? You're at your most vulnerable point. And for you to have access to somebody who is suffering, that says something about the relationship already, is that they trust you. They want you, they need you, and they trust you. There's a trust factor. And in chapter 16, when Job says you're miserable comforters, in Hebrew, that's a phrase that says, you are bringers of trouble. Instead of bringing me comfort, you have brought me trouble. So how do we go from good intentions to being bringers of trouble? So often that, that happens. We don't think we're doing anything wrong, but we're actually intensifying. I remember when I went on a disaster relief trip to Mobile, Alabama, back when the hurricanes hit there. I remember some of the families that were there and were trying to put their houses back together and the water was still staying in the streets. And you know, they told us, they said, you know, some of the people that did the worst damage to our houses, they were the first responders. And they were trying to get here really fast and you know what happened? All the water's in the road, and it's just about to get inside their house, and all these big trucks are going really fast down the road, and what happened? All these waves and wakes pushed that water right on through their living room. When they had already maybe squeegeed some of it out, and they said they didn't know, they were waving at them, please stop, and the people were here, we're praying for you, <laughs> you know? and they're like, stop, you're making it worse. That happens so often is we flood people's souls with trouble instead of comfort. In fact, if you read the book of Job and you see how God finally was the means of comfort that Job needed, the amazing feat is not that Job survived his suffering. The amazing feat is that Job survived his friends. <laughs> Isn't it? Man, with friends like that, who needs enemies, right? When Job is, is deprived of all of his possessions, his livestock, his health, his suffering's just getting started because then his friends come with their accusations and with their platitudes and they didn't help. So we need to get into our outline here and I just have a couple points, okay? Point number one, words are powerful. When you're comforting somebody, 
Eventually, you do need to talk. And I know the wisdom was in them just being with him and sitting there. And sometimes it's appropriate maybe to not say anything. But eventually, you'll want to say something. And this is just a reminder that words are powerful things. Proverb 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. You know, when I was a kid, and I wanted a gun really, really bad. I wanted a twenty-two. I wanted to shoot things and kill things. And just being honest, I lived in Arkansas, right? I wanted to shoot squirrels and birds. And, and my dad said, son, you're not old enough yet. You're not old enough. You need to be responsible. You need to show maturity. You need to show that you understand how powerful this, this weapon is. And see, I had to wait. But you don't have to wait to get a tongue, do you? <laughs> you quit. You, you're born with a tongue. And man, do you use it when you're little too. And that thing has power. Greater power than any weapon. And you know, what? as a kid, you know what people used to say? When somebody would say something that hurt you deeply, what would you say? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Baloney. That's malarkey. Words wound us. They hurt us. They're powerful, and they're also dangerous. And I can still, to this day, remember sitting in a desk in my high school when my family was just under tremendous pressure. Something had happened. And the teacher said something to me in front of the whole class. And he was a Sunday school teacher at the church I went to. Now, I think I instigated. I said something that made him mad. And so he thought, this is the perfect opportunity to get him. And he said something to me. And that's been over 20. I was in the ninth, ninth grade. That was a while ago. Almost three, de- almost three decades ago. I can tell you right now, I've forgiven him. I haven't talked to him about it. I didn't feel like I needed to. Um, maybe I do need to eventually. But to this day, three decades later, I still battle bitterness for what he said in front of the whole class. And it took him three seconds to say it. Words are powerful. And they're dangerous too. They can bring great harm or they can bring great comfort. Words are powerful. And listen, a theology of suffering is not what everyone needs right whenever tragedy hits. Sometimes they just need fellowship of suffering. Just the fact that you show up says something before you ever open your mouth, and it says something important, right? They want your company before they want your answers. In fact, I will tell you this. As a pastor, I have seen this. Whoa, here we go. Do you know the people who ought to be first in line to bring comfort to somebody that's undergone affliction and tragedy and loss? It's the people that have gone through something similar. And I'm getting this straight out of the Bible. Check this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that... Why does God comfort you and me in our affliction? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The word comfort is in that entire passage like 10 times if we, keep, if we kept reading. And he's saying, you know what? God has comforted you in your affliction so that you may comfort somebody else in their affliction with the same comfort, comfort that God gave you. So if you have been comforted by God, man, you are equipped, you are like ready to go and comfort and help somebody else. Because listen, I meet with people a lot of the times that have gone through something I've never gone through. I'm a pastor and i try to be a student of scripture and have things I want to share with them. But the person who's lost a child, do you know who one of the greatest sources of comfort will be to them? Somebody else who's lost a child or a loved one. 
man, I want to, I want to connect them. I've never lost a child, but I know people that have, and man, do I want to get them together when it happens, if they're open to that. I struggle with what to say sometimes. Maybe you're, maybe you're there too. Maybe when something so sudden, so devastating happens, it scares you to be, you're like, I don't, I don't want to be one of Job's friends. I don't even want to go over there. I don't want to visit them. But listen, I want to tell you something. You being there says so much and means so much to them. And, and it's okay to say this. You can be honest. You can say, look, I don't really know what to say to you right now, but I knew that I needed to be here. I knew that I needed to come. I have said that even as a pastor so many times and just sat there and cried. Sometimes you don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. You just show up like Job's friends did when they were wise and you sit in the ash heap for as long as you need to in silence and you tremble and you cry and you shake with them and hold their hand and let them drown your shoulder with their tears. Sometimes that's what people need. And isn't it interesting? They want people who understand them. What do, who does a little child cry for when they fall down and get hurt? Their pastor? <laughs> no. Especially not kids in this congregation. They're like, don't send the pastor. They want their mommy, don't they? Or their daddy. You know, funny story, and I asked my wife permission to share this with you. We were newlyweds. I mean, literally, right after we got married, my wife had her wisdom teeth cut out or pulled out. I don't remember. But it was one of those, it was bad. And the medication that they give you, you know, you've seen maybe YouTube videos of people filming their, their kids after they get the, is it Novocaine that they, I don't know what it is, but they say just weird things, man. You know, they hallucinate almost. Well, my wife was one of those people. She got her wisdom teeth cut out. I took her back home. I put her in bed and she totally wigged out and flipped out. I mean, her, her, her grandmother had passed away not, not, too, uh, not too much before we got married. And the sheets on our bed were the same color as the sheets in her mom's house. And she thought she was in her mom's house talking with her mom. And then she thought there was a sea turtle under the, under the covers trying to attack her. And then she looked at me. She couldn't talk. She had gall stuffed in her, in her mouth. And I said, I'm calling your dad and I'm calling your mom. Because she was hysterical. She was grabbing me, shaking me, going, oh, 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 trying to say turtle, turtle. And I said, I don't know what to do. So I called her mom and I called her dad and her mom her mom showed up and walked in the room. She said, Sarah, she said, oh, you're in a lot of pain, aren't you? She said, you just need it. And Sarah's like, uh-huh. And I, and I just got out. And then her dad showed up. And he said, why is this room so dark? He's back there in the back. Hey, Pops. He showed up and he said, you got it. The room's totally dark. And he opened a curtain. They just knew. They knew what their daughter needed. I didn't. I was just a newlywed. I was an idiot. I didn't know what was going on. But they showed up and they went to work. And you know what? So often that's what we need. Somebody that just knows. That we don't need theological explanations. We just need somebody to cry with us and to empathize with us and bring us comfort. That's the first thing. So, I think I got my notes out of order here. Hang on. Yeah, I was wanting, I was wanting to fix my wife. That's what I wanted to do. And she didn't need to be fixed. And so often I try to do that in counseling. I just want to fix people. Oh, you're broken. Well, goodness, do this and this and this. They don't need to be fixed. They need somebody to just cry with them. They don't need explanations. They don't need you to hypothesize. That's what Job's friends did. In fact, let's look, because I, I want us to learn from this. What did Job's friends say that was so hurtful to him? And I've taken uh, just... <laughs> Their most famous statement, each of them. There were three friends and three things that each of them said. Here's the first one. Iliphaz the Temanite. 
One of the first things that came out of his mouth, his, one of his best friends lost all 10 children, okay? And he said this, remember who that was innocent ever perished. You know what he's saying? Job, you reap what you sow. We know that's how God is. God's just. And you got what you deserve. Can you imagine, can you imagine hearing anything worse than that after losing one kid, let alone 10? Basically, you deserve this. This is the hammer of justice falling on your life. Can't imagine that. But that's what Job's friend said. You got what you deserve. He says, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Well, I would say, you need to get out more, buddy. Because <laughs> life's a lot more complex than that, right? So that's uh, his best friend, Eliphaz. Second guy, Bildad the Shuhite. Here's what he said. If your children have sinned against him, against God, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Oh, boy. <laughs> How about that? Your kids deserve it. And he, but he keeps talking. It gets better. If you seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. So your kids deserve it. You need to pray more and you need to repent. You ever met this guy? I think these three men represent, and I hate, I, I hate to say this because I know the church gets rocks thrown at it all the time, and I love the church, and Jesus loves the church, and Jesus died for the church. But I will also say this as a pastor of over a decade and a half, uh, I think these three friends' counsel represents how a lot of churches treat people who are mourning and suffering. Pastors, leaders, counselors that have good intentions, but they're so misled. And so misread the people that are in front of them hurting. Pray more. I'm, ah, I could say more. I'm not going to. <laughs> Pray more is probably not the best thing to say to somebody when they're suffering. Or have you prayed about this? I mean, it's so subtle. You know what they hear? When it, have you prayed about this? What if you can't pray? <laughs> have you ever been in a state in a position you, you literally could not pray? And it's times like that I find great comfort in the fact that Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit intercedes. I know Jesus intercedes for us. That's, that's good news too. And the Holy Spirit intercedes with us. The Bible says with words that are, with groanings which are too deep for words. Man, do you ever feel like that? Holy, you're groaning. All of creation is groaning and the Holy Spirit's groaning for you. Because no I, no, I can't pray. No, I can't pray right now. But thank you for asking. Appreciate it. Pray more and repent. And here's Zophar the Namathite. Man, this guy's just a token of... <laughs> know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. He's saying, Job, you, man, you got off easy on this. What? Guys, you believe this is in the Bible? That's really in the Bible. That really happened. His, one of his best friends really did say that to him and thought he was helping. Does that blow you away? <laughs> Have you ever said something stupid? And it's not just that, oh, he just put his foot in his mouth. No, there's like 25 chapters of this. I'm just giving you the best stuff. You deserve worse. Pray more. Repent. Your kids deserve it. You reap what you sow. Man, that's just terrible, terrible, miserable. You can see why he said miserable comforters are you, right? Well, I want to give you, because I want this to be practical too, just, uh, there's 12 things, just 12 statements that you should steer clear of, <laughs> okay? If you're trying to help somebody that's, that's going through a hard time, um, 
Here's, here's a quote, by the way. This uh, book that Melissa let me use, Rebecca Reynolds wrote this. This is what she says. She, she compared in the book, by the way, uh, code, calculated, mathematical, theological answers. And I love theology and I love doctrine, so don't, don't leave here saying that I said theology is not important. She talks about bedside manners. Have you ever been to a dentist or a doctor and they just had terrible, you know, you've heard stories of, well, you got cancer and you're going to die. And if you live another month, I'll be surprised. You've heard stories like that, right? Here's what she says. Bedside manner matters in a theologian just as much as it does in a doctor. And posture tends to reveal as much about a scholar as his arguments. There's no way around it. Some truths of the Bible are difficult to hear. But if there is no compassion when communicating the theology of suffering... If there is only systematic Vulcan resolve, resolve, that scholar doesn't reflect the heart of Christ no matter what information has been crammed to his head. Even when God is severe, he does not project indifference. It's true, isn't it? So here's some harmful things that people say. Number one, God will never give you more than you can handle. People say that a lot. And that's misunderstanding a verse that's in the Bible that we'll talk about another time. God will never give you more than you can handle. That's unhelpful to the person who is neck deep in a crisis. In fact, one person said this. He said, I suggest changing this from God will never give you more than you can handle to let me come over and help you do some laundry. He says, that strikes me as more helpful and more compassionate. Number two, it gets better. Yes, it does, but right then it's not better. And before it gets better, it may get worse. Number three, when God shuts a door, he opens a window. Maybe, or maybe not. Maybe there is no window. Number four, did you pray about it? We've already talked about that. Number five, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. (laughs) Somebody ever said that to you in the midst of your suffering? And and again, most of these are theologically true, but man, just the timing, what, it's really bad off. I just heard about a man who was a professor at a university, and he took his three-year-old in a car seat, and he was supposed to go drop him off at childcare, and he forgot, and he left his kid in the car, and he taught his class, and he got back in the car, and he drove to the daycare, and when he pulled in the parking lot, he realized, I haven't been here today. This child was dead in the back seat. What would you say to him? That man has friends. You should pray. We should pray for him. He has friends. They're going to talk to him about this. I don't know whether he's a Christian or not, but can you imagine saying God is good all the time to the man that just discovered his toddler in the back seat in a 110 degree car? Here's another one. But for the grace of God, go with I. Number seven. I'm going to go through these quickly. Don't worry. God's in charge. Hey, I'm a firm believer in that. Nothing escapes the notice of God. All things work together for good, but again, timing. Number eight, maybe God needed to get your attention. That's kind of what Job's friends do. They start imagining all these scandalous secret sins hiding underneath the surface. Here's another one. Maybe it happened for a reason. There was a man, I, I got some of these off of, of uh, an article I was reading, and the, the guy was really funny that was writing it. And he says, uh, 
He says, remember what I said earlier about punching somebody in the face? Yeah, that again. That was his response to this. Number 10, just call me if you need anything. And you know what? I say that a lot. And I don't know, I might could quibble over that. I think what he's saying is you show up and shake their hands and say, just call me if you need anything. Instead of offering really tangible, helpful ways to really serve this person. Here's, an, here's just a couple more. Number 11, I could never go through what you're going through. And number 12, when I think of your situation, I'm reminded how blessed I am. No, 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 no. You know, if you'll notice, Job's friends, they were trying to offer Job an explanation of why he was suffering, and that's when we get into trouble. Because what we need in the beginning is not an explanation. What we just need is tears. We need tears and we need comfort. And that's why they did him a great disservice. So that's point one. Words are powerful and words are dangerous. And man, I, I, I wanted to really be helpful to, to you as a congregation because so many, suffering again takes so many forms. And for maybe somebody that's suffered abuse from a spouse, and we say, well, are you submitting? Have you submitted to him? Or maybe somebody who has been praying for a spouse forever, they're single and they're alone and they want to be married. I have heard this. I have heard that singles who have really been praying for a spouse, one of the hardest events for them to go to is what? A wedding. Why? Because some of the terrible things that people say to them, that just assume they're miserable and try to fix them or play Cupid or offer platitudes as to why they're still single. It may be ways that they can get a spouse or some reasons why they're not getting a spouse or tell them that eventually God will reward them with a spouse when they're patient enough. Again, those are just really terrible things to say to somebody in the midst of suffering. But here's the second point. All of this, you know, last week I told you that Job as an innocent sufferer points to a greater, the true innocent sufferer, Jesus. Job feeling like he was being cut off uh, points to the person who really was cut off on our behalf, Jesus. But I also think the miserable comforters, Job's friends, they point us in a contrasting way to the great comforter, right? And them being worthless physicians, don't they point us uh, by contrast to the great physician. And I wanted to talk, I wanted to finish this message by talking about Jesus. Jesus is the great physician, and you know the Holy Spirit is the great comforter, right? John 14, 26. Jesus says, I go, but I will send another helper, an advocate, a comforter to teach you all things and remind you of what, what I have taught you. In Greek, that actually says another of the same kind. Jesus is saying, I'm sending somebody else like me. The Holy Spirit, the great comforter. And the, the New Testament, the book of Acts, says that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings comfort that's irreplaceable, unparalleled. And so does Jesus. And I just wanted us to consider Jesus. You know, one of the greatest titles for Jesus in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. And it says this. It says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And I can't think of a better description for somebody who is suffering because they're so fragile. 
They are on the edge of collapse. They're on the edge of turning and completely abandoning the faith maybe, right? Walking away from the church, calling it quits, or worse, ending their life. They're just so fragile and vulnerable. And if you just say the wrong thing, you can, you know what a smoldering, a smoldering wick, it's like a candle that's burned down, you know, the wax, the liquid wax is built up and you're like, is it going to go out? Is it going to stay lit? Do y'all have some of those in your house too? What do you do with those? What do you do? You throw them away. They're worthless. They're done. Jesus never does that. He never discards somebody that's so fragile, so on the edge. Or a a bruised reed. Have you ever seen a breed in the marsh that's bent in half? And it's just all it takes is just one little uh, gust of wind and that thing falls over. And it says of Jesus, he will not extinguish the wick and he won't snap the reed. He won't do that. He understands. He's the great physician. He's tender. He's kind. He's gracious. He's understanding. He's empathetic. You know, Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus is touched by our infirmities. He's touched by them. He's deeply moved. When Jesus sees human pain and agony, it's, it's magnetic to him. He's drawn to it. He moves toward it. He's not intimidated. He wants to go and meet that need. He's attracted to it. Charles Spurgeon wrote a devotion and if, you, if you're looking for a good devotional, Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon is amazing. This is for the July 19th, uh, sometime this week, I think maybe Friday. But he wrote the devotion on that verse. A bruised wheat reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And Spurgeon says this, weak things are here described. Yet Jesus says of them, the smoldering flax I will not quench. The bruised reed I will not break. Some of God's children are made strong to do mighty works for him. God has his Samsons here and there who can pull up Gaza's gates and carry them to the top of the hill. He has a few mighties who are lion-like men, but the majority of his people are a timid, trembling race. They are like starlings, frightened at every passerby, a little fearful flock. If temptation comes, they are taken like birds in a snare. If trial threatens, they are ready to faint. Their frail skiff is tossed up and down by every wave. They are drifted along like a seabird on the crest of the billows. Weak things, without strength, without wisdom, without foresight. Yet, weak as they are, and because they are so weak, they have this promise made specially to them by Jesus. Herein is grace and graciousness. Herein is love and loving kindness. How it opens to us the compassion of Jesus, so gentle, tender, considerate. We need never shrink back from his touch. We need never fear a harsh word from him. Bruised reeds shall have no blows from him, and the smoking flax no damping frowns. Jesus is the great physician, and he knows. He knows. See, so often we fail to triage people properly. I've preached on the verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, when Paul is talking to the church, and he says, look, now there's, there's some people that are insubordinate, and they need to be challenged and confronted and called to repentance. But there's other people that are just weak, They're tired, they're depressed, and they need to be comforted, and you need to be patient with those people. People that are living in outright sin, they need to repent, but listen, people who are wounded, they need to be healed. People that are weak, they need understanding. That's what they need. And I love reading about and watching the life of Jesus in action, don't you? He is like the perfect great physician, and no matter what kind of pain and agony, he encounters, he always brings the right amount of comfort. And we can, be, we can be taught by him, by his example. Consider 
how Jesus interacted with people who are suffering. It's astonishing. There's just a few instances I want to mention before we close, but one of the greatest is Martha and Mary and Lazarus. You remember them in John chapter 11? The Bible says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and their brother Lazarus. So we know that. Jesus loved these three siblings, and they lived in a village close to Jerusalem, Bethany. And so Jesus heard Martha and Mary sent word, hey, look, our brother Lazarus is sick. And Jesus got word, and you know the story, he waited. He waited until Lazarus died, and then he went, because he was going to do something. He was going to bring beauty out of these ashes. But when Jesus showed up, it's really interesting to watch the exchange that he had with Martha and Mary. Here's what it says. Can you guys see this? It says, when Jesus saw, that is, uh, Martha, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Just stop there for a minute. Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit and he's greatly troubled. This is actually a word that was used for a wild stallion that would snort and protest in anger. Jesus is angry and Jesus is sad. And it says it again down here, deeply moved, Jesus wept. That is amazing that, that we have a weeping God. This is the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, and it's the deepest and the most profound. You could preach on it for all eternity and never touch the bottom. Jesus wept. Now think about this. Jesus is about to turn this funeral into a party. He knows that. He's about to, Lazarus is about to walk out of his tomb and they're going to celebrate. Celebration time. Sorry. They're about to have a party and he knows that. And yet he wept. And yet he's deeply moved in his spirit and he's greatly troubled and he's deeply moved again. That blows me away. Blow Jesus who, who had all the answers, who could unravel the mysteries, but he doesn't. You know what he does? He weeps. He lets Mary and Martha say, where were you? I've already preached on this in the past. I'm not going to re-preach it. But you know the first things that they say to him? Lord, if you would have been here, what? This wouldn't have happened. You know what that is? That's an accusation. This is your fault. Where were you? And what did Jesus say? How dare you? Pull yourself together. Do you know who you're talking to? None of that. He was deeply moved, and he was greatly troubled, and he wept. That's, that's amazing to me. Man, I want to learn from Jesus. Don't you? <laughs> I want to learn from Jesus. They felt hurt. They felt betrayed. They were angry. They were sad. Jesus knew what he was about to do. He was stirred up by their grief. Jesus never addressed sorrow with cold mathematics and philosophy. He cried and he wept. He's deeply touched. He was moved by their pain. Why? Because he's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. He gets it. He is affected. Jesus is the one who came to shed tears, but that's not all he came to shed, is it? He would also do something about our sorrow and our grief. He would also come and he would shed his blood. And that's ultimately how we can face the greatest tragedies, because of the cross. The cross says this wasn't without meaning. Because of the cross, no tragedy is meaningless. No tragedy is meaningless. And no tragedy because of the cross has to be the defining moment in our life. And no tragedy is permanent because of the gospel for Christians, right? 
It's not the end of the story. And it's okay to say that when they ask. Say, look, this is not the end of the story. One day, Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. But I love that interaction and that exchange that Jesus had with Martha and Mary. And I also love the interactions he has with, with other people. You remember there's a man whose son, excuse me, a man whose daughter, his name's Jairus, and his daughter is at the brink of death. You remember this? And he runs up, he finds Jesus, and he says, my daughter's at the point of death. Please come. And Jesus says, of course, I'll come immediately. And he's walking, and he gets interrupted by an older lady with an issue of blood. You remember this? And so Jesus has to stop. Put yourself in the shoes of the man whose daughter's dying. He's waiting like, come on, who's this lady? Come on. She's had this issue for 38 years. My daughter's about to die. But Jesus is never rushed. He's the master of the moment. He stops. He heals this woman's issue of blood. And then somebody comes from Jairus' house and he says, hey, look, don't trouble the teacher any longer. She's dead. Your daughter's dead. And your wife needs you. We got a funeral to plan. And remember what Jesus does? I just love this. It's so touching. He looks at Jairus and he says, don't be afraid. Believe. See, he knew. He knew what that man needed to hear in that moment. He was afraid and he was doubting. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Believe. He's the great physician. He knew. There's another man whose son is filled with a, with a demon, and he's casting this kid down beside the fire, throwing him in the water, trying to destroy him. The disciples try to cast out the demon. They can't. This guy's in despair. Finally, Jesus comes. And I just love, I love watching what Jesus does, because Jesus could unravel all these mysteries. He could give the theological explanations that we all think we're supposed to give, but he doesn't. You know what he says? He says, how long, tell me, how long has he, has he been like this? You know what Jesus says? Tell me about your son. Tell me a story. And I have found, and all, all the times that I've visited families with tragedies, especially those that have lost loved ones, we think the last thing they want us to talk about is the person who passed away. But you know, that's the very thing they want to talk about usually. Like, hey, tell, tell, me, tell me about your son. Tell me about what made him laugh. What was his, what was his favorite thing to do? Jesus does that. You know, the, the man that was filled with demons, the demoniac in Mark 5, you know one of the things Jesus did when he confronted him? He said, what's your name? He's trying to like draw out the humanity in that man who was just filled with demons and, and wild and distressed and agonized and bloody and naked. You remember? And he says, you're a human being. Tell me your name. Jesus knew exactly what to say and when to say it. The leper filled with sores, cursed, unclean, cut off from the tabernacle, cut off from worship, cut off from the temple. What did Jesus do to him? You guys remember this? What did he do to the leper? He said, you know, let me tell you about leprosy, all the ins and outs and what you have to do. No, 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 he touched him. He touched him and he said, I can make you clean. He t- what, did that, what did that leper need that he hadn't had in probably years? Human contact. Jesus is the great physician. And he knows exactly what we need. Look at, look at the woman who, who had committed adultery and was broken in John 8. What did Jesus say to her? Woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there's none left, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. He knew exactly what to say. Jesus knew what to say to those who are suffering. And we are being conformed to his image 
And so I, I really wanted to be practical with this message. Um, you can study the book of Job and you can see what not to say to people who are suffering and who are in agony, but you can study the gospels and understand the gospel better and be a better friend to people who are in agony and you can remind them of the gospel. You know what the greatest thing that people can hear who are in agony is that you are not alone. You are not alone. God has not forsaken you. God has not abandoned you. God loves you and he's gonna be with you. And I just want to sit with you. I want to be here for you and with you. I want to pray with you. That's being Christ-like. To remind them, this is not the end. Your story's not over. And there's more things we can say, but we're going to save that for another time. Let's pray. Let's pause and pray and listen. There's probably somebody in your life that you know who's suffering right now and who needs comfort And maybe this is the time where you reflect on things you've said in the past that just ask God to forgive you and help you be a better friend, help you be a better comforter. This message is not meant to condemn anybody. Or maybe there's somebody in your life suffering right now and hopefully this message uh, puts the right kind of fire under you where you pray and say, God, I want to be Christ-like to them. I want to gravitate toward them and, and help them speak a word of kindness because words are powerful and they're dangerous. So let's just pause and let's pray. And then we'll close, okay? Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to to study and learn from the life of Job and from his three friends. And I'm thankful for the end of this book where Job was asked to pray for his friends so that God would forgive them. And Job was finally comforted by his brothers and his sister and he was comforted by God. And I pray that you would help us, Lord. No doubt there are going to be many people who face intense suffering that we're going to encounter. And we need your help, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit to teach us what to say. We need your Holy Spirit to fill us with truth and with compassion. Just like Jesus who talked with Martha and Mary, he had truth, but he had tears first. And I pray that we would bring both of those, Lord, in the right balance. Help us to not be intimidated to know that you are with us wherever we go, whoever we're talking to. Give give us the right words to say, Lord. Give us the tears to cry. May we be deeply moved and troubled by the pain that we see around us. So much darkness and pain right now, Lord. I know it's not just on a national disaster. It's on a personal uh, or national level. It's on a personal level too, a local level. So help us be your your hands and your feet. Help us to not be worthless physicians. Help us to not be miserable comforters. Help us to not torment people and break them up with our words. Help us to bring life and remind people that their story's not over, that Christ came and died so that every tear could be wiped away and there could be healing and there could be comfort. And I pray for those even in this room this morning, Lord, who are just deeply affected by suffering in their life right now. Pray that you would comfort them, Lord, and that you would use their family and members of this church to bring comfort to them. And I ask and pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.